Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I am not here with Steve today, but the voice you're going to hear on the mic besides my own belongs to Matt Gaffney. Good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Bill. And we have a special bonus episode for you today. We are on the road and we are in the beautiful hills of the Monongahela National Forest in Northeast West Virginia. Matt is fortunate enough to have a position with the National Forest Service. So Matt, what is the actual title of your position here? So my title is a biological science technician in wildlife. All right. So for today's episode, we're gonna be taking a hike with Matt and hearing about the ins and outs of his position, how he arrived at this position. But before we get into that, Matt, I would like you to give our audience just a one or two sentence idea of what is your job? What do you do here each day? Yeah, so what I do each day is walk around the woods and gather data. <laughs> so we've been talking about this and folks, I'm going to be completely honest. <laughs> so Matt's laughing a little bit. This is actually the third time that we're trying to record this interview. We've started twice and I've looked down and twice now realized that I wasn't recording. Whoops. <laughs> so third time's the charm. We're going to try to get this right. But I'll try not to reuse the same jokes that we've already done twice, okay? Oh, I'll just laugh twice as hard. <laughs> All right, so while the gathering data, to those not in the know, may not sound that sexy, you did get to spend most of your day outside, right? Oh, yeah. So we will get into kind of the nuts and bolts of what's involved in your day-to-day -day job a little later on. But I thought it would be good to start out by Matt having you describe to people, how did you end up here talking to me today? Yeah, so I, I actually had been working in, in digital marketing for a number of years, so pretty different from what I'm doing now. But uh, yeah, I had been doing that for a number of years and kind of was looking to change things up. And um, I had a friend who worked at Buffalo Niagara Riverkeeper, and I ended up doing a, an internship there while I was still you know doing my, my regular job. I loved it. I was just working with some people that cared about the same kind of stuff that I cared about. And it was just like a really positive work environment. And a lot of that was outside and with some really interesting people. So and was it, this, this internship paid? No, it was unpaid. Okay. So yeah. And I, I was kind of hoping that I would be able to kind of like work my way in there as a, you know, a, a, some kind of job there. Right? Sure. And that happens a lot that a internship can lead to a position. Right. Yeah. And so while that didn't happen, it did really motivate me and spur me into just doing whatever I needed to do to get into the environmental field. Like I didn't have a vision of exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to be in that field. And that's when I decided to go back to school and uh, get my bachelor's and that's how I got to UB and uh, that's where I had you as a teacher and kind of how I got here. And although I've said this twice before in our previous recordings, <laughs> I feel like I do have to say for the audience, Matt was a little bit of an older student. So he was an excellent student in that he came to class with enthusiasm to learn and you always had comments that added to the discussion. So thank you for that. Oh, very, very kind of you to say, Bill. <laughs> sure. Yeah, if it was the first go around uh, when I was first in school, you, you might not have noticed me as much. So <laughs> yeah, you know, age had a little bit to do with it, but going back later in life, it was cool to kind of get to do things the, really, you know, the way I really wanted, right? Sitting in front of the class and talking to my uh, professors after. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty cool experience and got to meet some great people like yourself. Oh, thanks. So you got an undergraduate degree Yep. In, in what, environmental studies? Yeah, environmental studies with a specialized track in natural resources. And then how did you get from there to here? 
Yeah, so while I was still in school, I ended up getting an internship with the Forest Service in Alaska. And that was before, so this was over the summer, before my senior year there. And that was something that I kind of had in my head right when I went back, that that was going to be a good opportunity for me to do an internship of some sort to try and get some experience under my belt, you know, before graduating. So I just kind of scoured the internet for, you know, wildlife technician, you know, field position, just like, you know, all kinds of different little search queries. Um, and that was going to be a question, like, yeah. how did you track down that position? So you were just kind of doing a blanket search, spending a lot of time on the internet? Basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, at least that, that, that's how it started. And then by applying to some of these and contacting some of these people, you know, it kind of follow the, the leads, right? right? Go down um, those rabbit holes. Yeah, exactly. So I ended up applying to, I think it was seven. I mean, it was it was around that number of internships for that summer and and how many did you get yeah the the only one i got was was the <laughs> was was the the best one that there was and it was also the last one i had to hear back from so nice. i was really crossing my fingers on that but when did uh, that I position did, yeah. start it what month? started in may okay and Easter. when did you apply it would have been you know months before it, it was it was that winter you okay. know it was around january Maybe maybe around there is. Yeah. So I just think, when to I was give people an idea, yeah. you know, people that might be in the same position that you were, you know, looking to change jobs, or even people that are finishing up or getting close to finishing up an undergraduate degree, looking for a path to an internship in Alaska. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was uh, going into the spring semester, right? So okay. like December, January yeah. is definitely when. Uh, when so I was at least those five out. six months ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned that the position that was with the U.S. Forest Service. Yep. And they paid for you to, they paid your travel expenses? Yes, they did. That is crazy. Yeah, I know. It, because the, uh, most of the positions that I applied to, like, weren't offering that, that kind right. of thing. Get yourself there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was I was pretty fortunate with that. They, they treated me well, and, you know, housing was included. and uh, What kind of housing? So it was a bunkhouse with 13 other people, <laughs> <laughs> which was kind of crazy. And I didn't have a car either. Like, I'm in my 30s. I haven't been without a car in, like, 20 years. So that was kind of weird. You were able to save all your money, I bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where are you going to spend it, right? No, I don't know. Yeah, There, there wasn't a whole lot out there. <laughs> but, uh, so give people an uh, idea of what you were doing. So you, you flew into Anchorage, right? Yep. And then what? And I was staying in this little town called Girdwood, which is an hour outside of Anchorage. And this is south-central Alaska. And, uh, yeah, so I was staying at the bunkhouse and... This was also called like a biological science technician position. So it was it was all, well, not all, but almost all field work. And we did a number of different things. One of the things I spent the most time doing were these uh, vegetation surveys where we were backpacking for four and five days at a time. So you got paid to backpack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough conditions. <laughs> a lot of the time. I, was, I mean, it was, you know, like as spectacular as it was up there, you really had to, like, earn it, yeah. you know? I mean, because, so it's the world's northernmost rainforest, unless I'm mistaken. Oh, okay. Someone could fact check me on that. It could be wrong. That's what I was told. Okay. World's northernmost rainforest. We'll put it in the episode notes. Yeah. So right. And it was, it was the, the True Gotch National Forest. So it rained a lot. So... You know, I just remember thinking, I'm like, oh, gosh, I wish it would just, like, stop raining. And then it would stop raining, and then you would just get swarmed with bugs. And then you'd be like, oh, I wish it was just raining, like, a little bit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, there, there would kind of always be something t- 
testing your <laughs> so how it was like, worth it physically demanding was it in terms of the hikes and the elevation and all that it was intense i yeah. mean you know the the region that i was in was was really mountainous and uh you know we were often you know hiking up and down mountains you know elevation gain of thousands of feet and uh, how'd you do uh, i got my buck kicked <laughs> <laughs> But it was great. I mean, I you know I came out better than I went into it. You know, yeah. so what else yeah, can sure. learn, right? Yeah. <laughs> nice. But it was it, it was good. And so yeah, so some of the vegetation survey work um, that we were doing, you know, we would we would hike off trail and kind of bushwhack to these plot points, and we were um, doing assessment of canopy cover and species ID. We also set up some acoustic monitoring for little brown bats up there. Oh, really? Um, yeah, interesting thing. I guess they uh, they don't have the white nose syndrome up there uh, yet. Yes. I, it's, like, and, you know, they're concerned with the warming up up there that that's going to allow for it to, to get up there. But um, Oh, yeah, with climate change warming things up. Yeah, so oh, okay. th- that was you know, just some of the things that I had heard while, while I was up there. This yeah. isn't, like, based on work that I know well. It's <laughs> sure. just kind of spouting off what I, w- what I was told up there. Yeah, so a lot of the things just involved hiking out on, like, mountains and stuff. You know, carrying a bunch of gear and yeah, making sure you got back safe, <laughs> like, which is sounds simple enough, but it's pretty involved. You know, especially when you're out there and it was just like so rugged and so wild and so remote. So you uh, did you see any moose up there? Oh yeah, a ton of moose. Yeah. Which you you probably know this are cause more deaths per year than bears do. Maybe I forgot that. But 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 here's the thing, and you can fact check me on this too. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm not sure if that includes car accidents or I not. I was going to think. Because I think it does. Yeah. And they're so tall right. that their eyes don't even reflect in your headlights. Off I've come close thing. to hitting a moose once. Really? Eh? Like within feet of the moose. Oh, wow. And I knew if I had hit that moose, I would have been in my car and I would have been in much worse shape yeah. than that moose probably would have been in. They are huge. Yeah, they are massive. They are so huge. Like any listeners out there, if you've never seen a moose in person, it's hard to wrap your head around actually how big they are. It's like if you could, I wouldn't recommend this, but if you could walk under a moose, you really wouldn't have to duck down very much. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know? not, not recommended, for yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and you were telling me about the bears, so, so give the, the audience your little story about the bears. Yeah, a yeah. Lot, lot of bears up there. Where I was, there was a higher density of black bears to brown bears. Okay. And they called them brown bears there, not grizzlies, because my understanding was the differentiation is brown bears feed on salmon as well as everything else that a, bear, that, that a bear feeds on. So they, they get even bigger because there's a ton of salmon up there where, right. where I was at. But so, yeah, so there were, there were a lot around and, you know, we had to do this like bear awareness training and always had bear spray on us and we're supposed to keep in, in large groups, even though I would sometimes <laughs> go hiking by myself. But um, it'd always be telling you to be loud and people would just be shouting, Hey, bear. Oh, bear. Stuff like that. Where, were you wearing bear bells? My mom bought me one. I don't think I ever wore it. I think that's most people. Yeah. I have one at home, too. Yeah. And I was quickly called out on one of the first times we went out. We were taking a group of volunteers out to do some invasive vegetation removal, which kind of just amounted to pulling out dandelions. Just full, full, full disclosure on that one. <laughs> What, for show or? <laughs> this type of dandelion was invasive there. I okay. Don't, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, we were out and uh, I I was like leading the group at one point and I, f- I forget how it came up, but uh, 
I had my bear spray just like zipped up in my pack, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, definitely got called out and uh, and berated for that because you have to have it in your right. holster. You on can't you tell because, the, the bear. Hold on. Yeah, because <laughs> like, usually, you know, if there's an encounter, you're just upon it. Or, you know, they're like, not going to give you time to. Yeah, and they're so they're so quiet is one of the other things too. And some of the times that we came across them on the trail, you would think something so big. You're gonna hear it just like rumbling around us, but like if, if like me walking through these trees, you're gonna hear me. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, they're just like the pads on their feet. They're like so quiet. So yeah, when you would come upon one, you'd be pretty close usually. Sure. Around the bend, and boom, there it is. Yeah. So yeah. you were saying you had one at a meeting. Yeah, yeah. yeah the the first week that I was there, you know, we were we were having uh, a meeting, and some someone just says, "Oh, a bear out there." <laughs> I'm like, "What? What?" So I, I turned and looked, and it was, like, poking its head, like, right in the window. A brown you know, bear? This was a black bear. Okay. Yeah, so you know, I got out my phone and started take, taking pictures, and, like, everyone else is just, like, going about their day. You yeah, know, uh, like it's, it's just a bear. I thought it was pretty awesome. It's like seeing a blue jay here, right? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were, I mean, there were all, you would see them frequently, especially, like, in town. There were a lot. Cool. Yeah. So that was your, your time at Alaska. Yeah. And then uh, since we've already done this twice today, I'm trying to in my head keep track of okay what should we what do we need to talk about here right so let's give people the idea what the landscape is around us right now we are uh at a place called spruce knob we have some spruce trees around us right yeah yeah, yeah. so these are red spruce and this is the highest point in the state of west virginia mm-hmm. it's, it's over four thousand feet and uh, yeah i was kind of surprised that there's actually higher mountains in new york mount, mount marcy is over five thousand. i know yeah so the um, highest mountain in new york is higher than the yeah I, I just yeah, i found that interesting because being the mountain state and it is very mountainous down here i kind of thought that you know it might have been a bit higher than that and um, we are in the appalachians yep and that's um, how they say it here that's right yeah <laughs> so nobody right in calling me out on that <laughs> right <laughs> we're speaking locally yeah and so so this is uh, a spruce forest and there's actually only a tiny fragment of spruce forest remaining in the Monongahela than there were historically, so going back to the 1800s. It, this region, it used to be something like 90% spruce forest. Oh, really? Yeah, and then at the turn of the century, when there were huge developments in industrialized logging, they ended up clear-cutting almost the entire forest. And, of course, you know this was before all kinds of different like regulations were, were sure. on that. So it was a combination of just un- unregulated and incredible developments in being able to harvest that much timber in that short a period of time. So almost the entire forest was clear cut around 1900. And since then, it's grown back incredibly. I mean, I'm sure you saw driving in, like it's an oh, incredibly yeah. beautiful, green, lush forested area, but it's predominantly Northern hardwoods now. And, so mostly and, maple, cherry. Right, maple, cherry. Hemlock in there? Yeah, there's some hemlock. So yeah, so there's only a handful of places that are strictly red spruce stands. And that's something that uh, both Northern Flying Squirrel and the Cheap Mountain Salamander associate with red spruce. Oh, okay. And the Cheap Mountain Salamander listed as threatened. And then I'm not sure what the listing is of the West Virginia northern flying squirrel is anymore but it had been listed as endangered okay so both of them associating with these habitats with the red spruce forest among other factors makes it of some importance to the region sure and with the work you're doing here we'll get into this a little bit later but part of the work you're doing for the forest service here that is related to what you said off mic earlier releasing the red spruce Mm -hmm. so trying to spread that red spruce 
and create more red spruce habitat, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So we'll get into that. But just, again, to give people an idea of what we're looking at around us, we are at elevation, so we're high up, as you said, around something around 4,000 feet. 4,000 something, yeah. Yeah. So the red spruces here are somewhat stunted. Yeah. So the tallest ones around us may be, what, 20, 30 feet? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. So they're probably dealing with pretty harsh weather conditions here as well as pretty thin soil. I mean, just looking down at our feet. And we're seeing some blueberries, uh, some vaccinium species here, but red spruce is definitely dominant. Uh, we do have some bracken fern growing around us, some moss. And, you know, the trails that I'm looking at here are very reminiscent of what we would see back home in the Adirondacks yeah. in New York State. Yeah, in the, yeah. In the high peaks. Yeah. And if I can phone wrong, here in West Virginia, a lot of the high places, they just call them knobs. Knobs, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I was told, and that maybe maybe you might know more about this, but they're referred to as knobs around here because the peaks have eroded. Oh. Like, I don't know. That, that's what I was told. Like, I don't know what if that's... I don't know. We'll put that into told. the episode notes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll look that up and we can yeah. let people know. Right. All right. So we finished talking about what you were doing. Oh, actually, sorry. No, no, it's good. Because I know that from the clear cutting that happened around the turn of the century, yeah. part of the fallout of that was massive amounts of erosion oh, in the area okay so that might have something to do with with them being called knobs because like it, so not only you know clear cutting changed the type of forest it, it had major impacts on erosion yeah especially in thin soiled areas like this right you remove yeah. the trees that soil is gonna move a lot quicker right so yeah. it might have something to do with that sure all right so after you were in alaska why don't you give us just a, a quick rundown of the other positions you went through mm -hmm. and then we'll focus on your time here right now yeah so while at ub i did an internship with the dec and folks for anyone not from new york state that's our department of environmental conservation yep yeah and we were doing some bird surveys, some peregrine falcon nest box surveys in downtown nice. Buffalo, which was really cool. I had no idea those were even in western yeah. New York. A lot of people don't. Let alone downtown Buffalo. Yeah, yeah. like the fastest animal on the planet <laughs> living in buildings in downtown Buffalo. Awesome. It was really cool. Yeah. Technically on the outside of the building. <laughs> well, yep. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to put that in <laughs> So yeah, so I did that while at school, and then, uh, yeah, so after graduating last May, the first job that I managed to get was with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Again, was that just doing an internet search, just putting yeah. your name out there? and Yeah, and you know, I've, with the internships that I'd already done at the DEC and with the Forest Service, trying to stay in touch with my supervisors there and you sure. know the, the whole networking thing right yeah. i mean it's it's key yeah yeah, yeah it, it really is so keeping ties with some of those people cuz cuz some of them would email me opportunities that that would pop up too so those were kind of coming in but then i was also just doing my own research on uh, i don't know if you know like the the Texas A&M job board no yeah so Texas A&M has a has a job board where they post all sorts of environmental positions like oh. uh, that's a great resource that i'm still on all the time because all right. i've been doing seasonal work so we'll put that into the notes too for people yeah so that's that's a great one and then usajobs.gov is the one where you find all the all the federal positions for the national park service and the forest service fish and wildlife fish and wildlife yeah. right so yeah th those are two specific sites that i do a lot of searching for jobs on but also just you know googling it doing different kinds of state by state things like that so that's kind of how i came across the the montana one was just searching for it online and 
there was a census for swift fox that, that we were doing and this cool. was in northeastern montana so it was the prairie so not what most people think of when they think of montana or at least not what i thought of right. and, you know i'm thinking of the mountains and and the water and and, and all that so it it's was, a big state it's a big <laughs> state I, yeah i found i remember like driving through it i just remember, i had this thought like oh here's where all the land is like this is where all the land is it's diff- so just, different out it's, here in the east yeah it's so huge yeah and I like when I first got out there, it's kind of, it seems kind of like desolate, you know, you're just like, yeah, there is nothing out here, but spending some time there, you gain an appreciation for it and, yeah. and, you, and you really start to see more that you're just, you just like weren't noticing before. Right. You know what I mean? And They're so, deceptive landscapes out there. Yeah. Cause we're in that Eastern forest mindset. Anywhere we look, there's obvious diverse life. Yeah. But out there it's, you know, you gotta know what you're looking for. Right, exactly. So, yeah, it was neat getting getting to a place where, frankly, I would never have gone, like <laughs> unless I was paid to be there. Right. But it was a was a cool experience. We were setting up a camera trap transects, you know, with the with the little like scented fat disc soaked in mackerel oil on these sticks in front of. Wow. They stunk. It's like, have you ever used like scented bait for fishing? No. Well, if anyone has, it stinks. That's what this stuff smelled like. But, uh, yeah, so, like, you know, any critter walking by would come and take a sniff. So we were trying to see uh, the swift fox that were out there. That's the main thing that I was doing out there. And yeah. did you get to see some? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really cute. It, they almost look like a small coyote, at least in, like, coloration. They're, they're one of those indicator species where it's it speaks well of the ecosystem. Sure. And it had been extirpated from Montana I think in, I forget how far back it was. It's been a little bit. But I know that there were reintroduction efforts in Canada. Okay. And it, it, they had actually worked them themselves back down into Montana. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they reintroduced themselves to Montana. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Was, that's always know, nice to hear. Yeah, that's why they were trying to keep tab on, on their population numbers. So that was last summer. And then I got a position in Arkansas over the winter doing similar kind of work, setting up camera traps for wild turkeys. I did actually manage to do some capture while I was there, though, which was pretty cool. So we did some rocket netting. Oh, wow. Yeah, where we had to, uh, you know, they set up like a hunting blind, and they laid down this net. So you, like, roll it out in a line, um, let's say, like, you know, 50 feet across and set up these explosives that would rocket it out. At different intervals along the way. Yeah, so there were, like, three... It's funny because the last episode we just did on bird banding, we talked about rocket netting. Yeah, so I, I got to do some of that. Required a lot of just sitting quietly yeah. in, in a hunting line. And you got to camouflage the netting and stuff too because they're, they're, they're smarter than they look. Like they, <laughs> they, 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 they frighten easily at least, yeah. I can say that. So you, got, you had to have it really covered up well. And uh, then you just got to sit and wait for a long time. But yeah, once they got out there, you blasted the net over them and then ran out as quickly as possible how many would you catch at a time the most successful outing that i was involved in was five wow and yeah you gotta like wrap them up in the net real quick so that they're not struggling for can hurt themselves yeah you you want it you want to get them as out of there as quickly as possible so yeah so that was really cool to be so did you get to handle the turkeys yeah so i I helped wrap them up and then we stuck them into these big boxes i don't know like they were specifically made boxes to house a live turkey okay (laughs) so we we did that and then banded them and took some measurements and then set them on their way tell me what kind of band you used what kind of bands was it was it just a a band that you would just use players to close yes okay we talked about these they would call them if it's the one i'm thinking about butt end where you use the players and you would just seal the two ends together 
they yeah. just touch. That's how that's how they're put on. Okay. Yeah. Were you putting on single metal bands or multiple bands? Or? A single metal band. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Because yeah, one thing we found it. I don't want me to put you on the spot, but did you listen to the bird banding episode? I listened to the bird banding episode. Okay, no. good. <laughs> All right, thank you. Because we did find that yeah. a lot of times in wildlife research, they'll use multiple right. colored bands, and, and those can be problematic. So I feel bad because I actually, I've just gotten a couple emails in the past week from friends forwarding articles to me about people using colored plastic bands, and they're like, oh, look, they're hurting the wildlife. Right, yeah. And I'm trying to get back to them saying, that wasn't really the point of the episode. I'm not saying we should never use color bands. Yeah. I'm just saying those have the potential to be problematic and we need to be aware of that. Right. So nice to hear that you were just using single metal bands. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then you ended up here. Yeah. And that was actually why I had initially contacted you and said, hey, would you be willing to, to come on mic and do an interview with us? Because I don't know if you had emailed it to me or I just saw something you posted on Facebook. And as I said in our previous recordings, you're one of the reasons I still stay on Facebook because you post very interesting things about your positions and where you are, especially from Alaska. That really jumps out in my memory as, uh, wow, the scenery that you got to see there. Yeah, it's kind of funny, too, because I actually haven't been able to put as much up because even though I'm actually living in a town, I have zero Internet access here. And from when I was in the northeastern prairie of Montana to the world's northernmost rainforest in Alaska to a cabin in the woods in the Ozarks, I had better internet than I do in a town in West Virginia, yeah. which is pretty hilarious. But uh, We're yeah, not trying so. to speak ill of West Virginia. Of course not. It's, it's Verizon. They, they got it out for West Virginians. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but you had, you had said that possibly you'd be working with flying squirrels. Yeah. And that piqued my interest because we had done an episode on flying squirrels. Shout out, folks, to episode 24. If you haven't listened to that, Go ahead and listen to that. But that sounded super interesting to me. But honestly, just talking to you, it was. I think it's great that we got to hear about your other positions. And then also, you're providing people out there information on, hey, if you're interested in, in taking this path of finding these outdoor jobs, people can get good advice from you. For me, I was kind of in a position where I, I wasn't... Tied down? Tied down in, in any way. And the idea of just bumping around from place to place... Sounded pretty awesome. Just yeah. to experience some different places, see some different places, meet some new people and, and all that, which has been great. Yeah. It, it's also stressful when you have to move and you've like never been to a place before or sure. met anyone there. So there's certainly drawbacks or you know th- things that you have to deal with. But for right now, it's been really cool being able to jump to all these different places. And I could do it because a lot of the entry-level work in the wildlife realm that, that I'm in right now is seasonally based right. or project based. That's another so, source of stress, I'm sure. Sure, yeah, yeah. But then it, it does allow for kind of, you know, getting to this place and that place. Sure, too, I so. mean, the experiences you've racked up in the past two years, that's more than some people do in their whole lifetime. It's definitely more than I did in the previous five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My last job, so. And, you know, you're making big bucks, I'm sure, right? Oh, you're rolling in the dough, Bill. You know it. Yeah. That's what it's all about. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about what you're doing here. I can't remember. Have we gone over? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, let's go through it, and, and if we already talked about it, we'll cut it out. So right. give people an idea of what your life is like here. So you're staying in a bunkhouse. Yep. Nicer than Alaska or no? Uh, Comparable, okay. but there were 13 people in that bunkhouse, and it's just me and this one. So <laughs> that was fun with all the action going on, the one in Alaska. But So is this... 
is this a bunkhouse that's meant for a lot of people? I just picture like sad Matt sitting on his bed <laughs> with all these empty bunks around him. No, no, I'm just I'm like watching movies every night and blasting music. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like there's it it sleeps six. Okay. So you know it's like a kind of a large house. All right. You know. And you mentioned that most of your work here is doing surveys. Yeah. All right. right. So, so walk us through a day. The site that I've been at most often is ways away from the office. So it's like an hour and a half drive each way. So kind of a lot of driving involved. And that's actually been my experience in every position that I've had so far, <laughs> except for Alaska, where we actually, we didn't drive that far. We just like walked everywhere. Like for days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then once we're at our site, there's units that are keyed up to be uh, harvested for timber, basically. And, uh, you know, being with the Forest Service, even though you know, I'm most interested in working with wildlife and that, timber is a big part of the agency, so we're going to be around that. Part of what I'm doing is looking for notable habitat features, regional forest-sensitive species of birds, information like that that they could be using at a, le- at a later date. Once they've harvested some of the timber from there, I guess the idea is that they would then be following up on this year, years down the line. It and sounds like same. you're getting baseline information. Right. Since okay. there's something planned for that site, Yeah. they want to know what was there originally. Yeah. So we were joking a little bit before because naive me is saying, oh, and if you find some sensitive or endangered species, then they're not going to log it, right? <laughs> well, I, I think they're still going to log it. <laughs> but it, except uh, I, the one species that, that is listed as threatened is the cheap mountain salamander. And that is one where if, if we come across that, they would not be harvesting well, timber in that area. As I was saying, I mean, we're joking a little bit here, but technically if you do find something that's listed on the endangered species yeah, list, right. I would think you can't. There would at least... I would think so too. Yeah. And I, like, I, I think that you're right. I just know that the specific things that I'm looking for, yeah. if we come across those, other than the cheap mountain salamander, yeah. it's not going to change what happens there. Okay. It's just of note. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that is good baseline information. So, I mean, logging is a fact of life in the U.S. Forest Service. Yeah. Whenever I bring it up, I, I always joke that's why it's in the Department of Agriculture. That's you right. Know, the, the, and and I know, and just from talking to the wildlife biologists in my region too, like the units that that I'm checking, it's not in stone that they're going to be harvesting from those too. So there could be alterations made based on what we find. Okay. But I just don't know that to be like a fact. Like, oh, if we find one of these, then it's off. Yeah. You know what I mean? So <laughs> So tell us about the cheap mountain salamander. Yeah, so it's uh, an endemic species to the region, so it's only found here. Nowhere else in the world. It had been listed on the endangered species list, but that's been downgraded to threatened. Um, that's good news. You don't get that too often. Right. So Mostly due to your efforts, right? It's all me. It's all me. <laughs> I've been out here all, all summer, Bill. I mean, come on. Good job. <laughs> but yeah, so we've, we've done a few surveys just for them, just for that species. And we did find a new population. Oh, nice. I was the first one to find one of the salamanders hey. up there. So I was pretty stoked about that. Yeah. But, they um, call it the Gaffney population. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of an, an unassuming salamander. It, it, it looks like a salamander, right? Like it's, you know, it's a darkish kind of slate color. It doesn't with, have rainbow frills. Or, yeah, uh, it's yeah. not like a poison dart frog or something, okay. right? Like it was bright and colorful. But it, and then it has these brassy flecks on it. So okay. 
they will not be harvesting in that area at this point now. Okay, so let's talk about the flying squirrels. I know that uh, when we initially spoke, you were hoping that you get to be involved in the capture yeah. and, and heavily involved, but it didn't turn out that way. Yeah. Yeah, so t just tell us about what's going on here with the flying squirrels and the research into them. Yeah, so like, you know, initially I was hoping to kind of do some capture and radio collaring of them and, and things like that, but you have to have your rabies shots to handle them. And I wasn't going to, I guess it's like a series of shots that takes a month or so. Right. And they were going to cap, be capturing them before I would have even been able to do so. So that didn't, didn't shake out. And plus, too, I mean, some of these entry-level seasonal gigs, I mean, you know, there's a list of duties that you may be doing right. and, and things that they think are representative of the job. But you never really know exactly what things are going to be until like you're until get you get there, right? Yeah. So you just got to be able to roll with it. So, yeah, I haven't done as much work with them as I was hoping, but did get out a few weeks back for that entire week I was going out and we were doing radio telemetry work cool. for nest site surveys. So it was during the day, they're a nocturnal species. So while they were sleeping during the day, we were using radio telemetry to pinpoint what trees they were nesting in. So you said you were, you were doing that during the week, during the day. Yep. Were you basically just told, oh, instead of doing your, your plot surveys, you're going to do this? Or were you given the option to do it? It was brought up to us that we might be able to help out with this. Okay. And, you know, my supervisor knows that, that I want to be doing more wildlife work. So they're looking out for me where they can. And oh, nice. Yeah, it's been pretty flexible where we'll, we'll kind of help out with this project for a couple of days and, you know, then jump back to what we were doing. So it's kind of fluid. And, Sounds you know, like you don't get bored, though. No, yeah, it stays interesting. Tell people about the radio telemetry. Not not everyone may know about that. Yeah, so we had um, this thing called an H antenna that we were holding in one hand and then like a little radio receiver in the other hand. And, you know, you could uh, pick up the signal of the collar on the flying squirrel by pointing the antenna at it. So it would pick up on the direction where it's at. And, you know, you'd hear like a little blip and you would go in the direction where you were getting the strongest signal. You'd just be walking through the spruce forest, kind of similar to what we're in here, adjusting the gain on it and the volume. And it could be kind of tricky, like a little bit trickier than you might expect. Oh, yeah. You might think, well, you just point and follow it. But there's, there's some finesse there's to some it. There's some technique. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. So we were tracking them down with that, finding their, their nest sites. And for those of you that haven't listened to the Flying Squirrel episode, I can't remember. Did you say you listened to it or no? Might have been a while back. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, listen to that Birdman one, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a test. It's okay. <laughs> so the northern Flying Squirrel, its range is here. And then the southern Flying Squirrel, the range also overlaps. And you said that here we're pretty sure it was just northern Flying Squirrels you guys were capturing? Yeah, what, what they were, were looking for. attempting to capture are specifically northern flying squirrel and specifically the subspecies of northern flying squirrel, the West Virginia northern flying squirrel. And that's right. So we should talk about that, how in the episode, the northern flying squirrel, there's a number of subspecies, like a surprising number of subspecies, depending where you are in their range. Now, did you know out west in the Pacific Northwest, there was a subspecies that has since been declared its own species? No. I yeah. So now it's, it's the Humboldt's flying squirrel. Really? It was considered a subspecies up until I think 2017 when they did some DNA analysis and they actually found out that it diverged from the northern flying squirrel in the past farther back than the southern flying squirrel. Really? So the northern and the southern are more closely related than the Humboldt flying squirrel and the northern flying oh, squirrel. Oh wow. But the Humboldt looks 
Like if you t saw two side by side, you'd have a hard time telling them apart unless yeah. you were an expert. So I think the Humboldt's is just like a little darker or something like that. But genetics show that they're related, but more distant related than the northern and the southern. Like the northern and the southern can hybridize. There's some areas in southeastern Canada where you have these two flying squirrels mating, um, even though they're different species. But as far as we can and tell... And have viable offspring? Yeah, oh. yeah. And, and the weird part is people initially thought they couldn't because do you know what the baculum is? I feel like I've heard it before. I, I actually think I did listen to this episode. It's the penis bone. Remember, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of mammals have a penis bone. We do not. But uh, yeah, and then the, the northern flying squirrel, the penis bone is stubby and spiky. And the southern flying squirrel, it's long and slender. So for a while, people thought, eh, their parts aren't going to go together. But yeah. apparently if they try hard enough, they can make it happen. <laughs> God bless them. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't stop nature, right? No. It's like a Jurassic Park. Nature finds a way. Life, life finds a way. That's not, right. Not, not, not to correct you. Yes, life finds a <laughs> way. I should know that. The only thing I that I could correct you on would be a movie quote and nothing scientific. So. No. <laughs> Speaking of that, I, I, driving up here, I went to ask you, being in West Virginia, have you seen Deliverance? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, you know. That is a frightening movie. It is. <laughs> for it really is. People that spend time outside. <laughs> yeah, some of, the, some of those movies in the 70s uh, just feels real. Pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. So we won't go into details here, folks, but uh, if oh. you like your. Stay uh, safe out there. <laughs> suspenseful, disturbing outdoor adventure movies. Look it's up deliverance. It's a classic. Yeah, it is a classic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, how did I don't think we mentioned how were the researchers here capturing flying squirrels? Yeah. So they were using these cage live traps. Like okay. I, I'm not like sure. Like a have a heart trap. I'm not sure what the actual name of them okay. is, but you know, th there's a door on on each side. Yeah. So it sounds like a have a heart trap. Yeah. And, and they and they then, go in, trip a tray, and then the doors close. Exactly. Okay. Right. okay. So yeah, and then they had some kind of peanut butter food kind of thing in there and they were only setting them up at night to try and mitigate capturing some other species that makes the, sense the, the flying turtle flying turtles <laughs> flying turtles holy smokes <laughs> we've been talking a while here, here we have. <laughs> it's okay <laughs> uh the northern flying squirrel being a nocturnal species and you said they were using radio collars but then also there was some chipping going on right? yeah i had heard uh people refer to both so i think that they had some that were radio collared and some that were pit tagged and pit tagging being where they kind of inject a little microchip under the skin under the skin yeah and you were telling me before that you got to practice that on rats yep so they let you practice on rats yeah even though you weren't going to get to do it with a flying squirrel yeah well the rats were dead okay so there was i guess there was no chance of them biting me and okay getting rabies or something I they don't were just know. <laughs> throwing you a bone and saying hey you get to do this basically okay it's some good experience put on the old resume sure you know? oh no it's all good experience yeah. right yeah. <laughs> you could put this on your resume i think i might all right <laughs> so you went out with the antenna you were locating cavity nests mostly right yeah yeah because that's a question i asked before in our episode it came up that most people when they think of flying squirrels they think they're cavity nesters the nature center i used to work at we put up nesting boxes because flying squirrels we know they're cavity nesters but in the episode when steve and i did the research it came out that northern flying squirrels sometimes don't nest in cavities that sometimes they'll build nests on branches or sometimes they'll even renovate a bird nest creating walls and, and a roof but you you didn't see any of that no you know when when we uh, got to the tree that they were nesting in 
it was a little anticlimactic because I remember I, I remember kind of thinking like, oh, so we'll get to like see him and it'll be like, really cool. And it's just way up in the tree asleep and you, you can't you see get it. To see him. So, <laughs> so you didn't so. get to see any flying squirrels? No. Oh, <laughs> sorry. So if you go again, maybe you could when the researcher has its back turned. I've been told that if you're at a tree that a flying squirrel nest Just is shake in, it really hard until like, you up. knock on the tree really? that sometimes they'll stick their heads out oh really yeah like they'll be able to feel the vibration and they'll stick their heads out to see who's around oh, so cool you can oh, just kind of do it on the slide next time yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so you got to do some uh vegetation surveys you got oh. to discover a population of cheap mountain salamander right, yeah. the gaffney population uh you got to do some work with flying squirrels. Yep. And has, has that been pretty much your experience here so far? Yeah. It's been a lot of those clearance surveys for the timber harvesting where we're, where we're looking for different species out there. So that's been most of what I've been doing out here. So always out in the field. Lots of tree ID, you know, species ID. So, you know, I've had to do a lot of that. Do you feel your, your ID skills have gotten better? They've definitely gotten better. Yeah. But they were pretty bad to start. <laughs> the bar was pretty low to start with? Yeah. So we're getting, we're getting there. Getting okay. There. <laughs> and so what's next? You're here till October. Yeah. And do you have a position coming up? Nope. There's a lot of stuff getting put up. So I've been checking basically every day. And Where have you applied? So the recent one that I, that I applied to was uh, in Arizona where it has to do with Mexican wolf oh, you mentioned restoration. That's uh, the, the most notable one. So, And that one you were saying uh, we, when we had lunch earlier today, you were saying that that's a position that it's not paid, it's just volunteer. Oh, you get uh, yeah. living expenses paid for. Yeah, you know, it's basically like a stipend and, and housing, which which would be a step back from where I'm at now. But I'm still, I, I mean, it's only been a year since I graduated, and I'm willing to take a hit on that. You get to work with if, wolves, if, Yeah, I mean, like, if it, if it means that and, yeah, really upping my experience. Yeah. And then also, like, the life experience of following wolves around right sounds pretty neat as so I, I mean you know that's just that's just one thing i've come across so we'll see how that pans out but as i said before do that write a book you could be the next ed abbey there so, you go yeah <laughs> <laughs> sure now you're only the second interview that we've done before as a, a bonus episode on the podcast so you're in elite company well, yeah so the last one we did me, folks that was gordon wilmot he did the Wild Ideas podcast, I mentioned that over lunch today. That was one of our inspirations for starting this podcast. And one of the questions I asked Gordon, and, and which I'll ask you right now, is share with the listeners, like, what was your first memory of an outdoor experience that led to your path? Do you have one? Is, is there a certain memory or just kind of a collection of memories, a place that maybe was your inspiration or your connection to the natural world? Yeah. I, I fished a lot as a kid, and I would always go out, like, catching turtles and stuff like that. And I always had something in the house, gerbils or Western whatever. Western New York? Yeah, Western New York, okay. yeah. So, you know, I, I always loved, like, catching little critters and everything like that. So, it, you know, it, it was there from when I was a kid. But I think part of what reinvigorated it was back in 2014. I forgot what even got me into this, but I started backpacking. Okay. And I went out into the Adirondacks and did a two-night, three-day backpacking excursion on my own. And, like, I'd never done anything like that really? in my life. Yeah. And what, what prompted that? You know, you, you get crazy life stuff that happens and, you know, things kind of go in directions that, like, you wouldn't really expect. And 
you know, I was just kind of like reevaluating where I was at. And okay. I think I, yeah, I, like I forgot what kind of got it in my mind, but. You had like a early life crisis. Kind of. <laughs> Instead of a midlife crisis. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Like a late twenties crisis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it kind of spurred me to like, I guess I maybe had like the thought of that for some time. Sure. And I finally got the real urge to act on it and get out there. And like, kind of like doing it on my own and everything. I was like, wow, like this is... For lack of a better term, that's ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I, maybe that was like a little bit of like proof that like I could do more than I was doing. Sure. And and that definitely reinvigorated my love and appreciation for the outdoors. Yeah. And places like this, like Spruce Knob here. So That backpacking trip you took, did you find somebody to go with? Or you just said, no, I'm going out by myself? I was going to do it by myself, yeah. Wow, good was, for you. Yeah. That was the idea. All right, <laughs> I do that too. You're you're one of the few people that. Uh, yeah. Now I, I I don't go out of my way to do it by myself these days, but I, I will. It's, it's fun getting out there with other folks. <laughs> it is. I I mean, it's wonderful to be out with other people, but when you're out by yourself, it's a different experience. It's it's a, it's a very different experience. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a worthwhile experience. I and thought so. Too, I know yeah. it's not for everybody, but I also think that there's a lot of people out there who think it's not for them. But if they could get out there by themselves. It definitely is a worthwhile thing to do. Yeah, I, I loved it, and I've done it a number of times since. So. so if someone's out there listening, and they have that itch, and they've always been wondering if Matt can do it, if I can do it, right? If I can do it, either, yeah. <laughs> get, yourself, get yourself out there by yourself. Yeah. Anything else you want to share with the audience? I guess, I mean, it's never too late to go back and start anew. I right, mean, so how old were you when you made that switch? 30. So, so you weren't a kid. No. no. <laughs> and would you say you're happier now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, like, on one hand, it's, I kind of, like, am living what I dreamt of sure. a few years back, which is great, and it's wonderful, but it's also still work, and, right. and and it's, some days the conditions are brutal, and it's rough out there, and I remember even, like, when I was in Alaska one time, it was, like, the most scenic place ever but it was the toughest hike ever. And I just remember like looking at the side, like, oh yeah, there's a big glacier over there. Like who the hell cares? <laughs> just because I was so beaten down. But but even with the tougher days, there's like a satisfaction there at the end of the day and the end of the week yeah. that I didn't have before. And so you're going to remember that day? Oh yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. I knew that, you know, getting into this, that it wasn't going to be all just frolicking around like i did it but so playing so, with uh, wolves and dolphins yeah. <laughs> right yeah. yeah so um so yeah you know i mean it's hard work a lot of the time but it's satisfying all right well thank you for taking the time to to do this and, and record this three times <laughs> my pleasure it's fun having company down here you're an elite company you're one of only three people that have managed to get down here all right <laughs> and we've recorded it for posterity exactly and i would just put the word out there any listeners out there if uh you have lines on uh federal positions or any positions that uh, matt might be good for drop us a line at the podcast and we'll put you in touch with matt i like all that right? he's a he's a good worker he's talented and i would highly recommend him very kind <laughs> bill thank you all right all right folks thanks for listening uh steve and i will be back soon with our regular monthly episode but Matt, one more time, thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. All right, and folks, we'll be seeing you soon.